Well, hello there. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is John Danaher, and I am the author of the blog Philosophical Disquisitions and the host of a podcast of the same name. What you're about to listen to is a little bit of a tangent or an offshoot from my normal podcast, which primarily deals with the ethics of technology and the philosophy of technology. It's the first in a series of conversations on the ethics of academia, which will investigate some of the ethical dilemmas and choices that face the typical academic in their working life. This is a topic that I've actually been interested in for some time. I've written a number of posts on the blog about it, and I was curious, or I did attempt rather, to publish a book on the topic a few years ago, although I couldn't find an interested publisher in the end. So I decided to produce this podcast instead. So it's going to be me interviewing some of my academic colleagues, some of them friends, some of them people that I don't know, about the ethical dimension of their work. Most of the conversation is going to follow the same structure. I'm going to be asking questions about the ethics of research, the ethics of teaching, and the ethics of management or administration. Some of the conversations are going to focus on one of those topics more than the others. I think the content will be of interest to anyone who's interested in the ethics of working life, but will, of course, be particularly of interest to my fellow academics, people who are employed in or interested in becoming employed in higher education. So the first episode, which you're about to listen to, is going to be a conversation with my friend Sven Nehum. He's appeared several times on my other podcast, so I thought he'd be a good person to get back as the first guest on this new uh, endeavor. So I think we had a pretty interesting conversation. This was recorded quite some time ago, so at the time that I'm releasing it, its conversation is nearly a year old, but I think the content is evergreen, although there's some references, of course, to teaching in the midst of a pandemic and the challenges that it posed, which may be less relevant today. Now, I won't say much more by way of introduction, just a couple of housekeeping notes before we begin. This podcast is going to be released in two separate venues. One is as part of my normal podcast feed. And for those of you who are listening on that feed, if you're worried, I am still going to release episodes that deal with the usual topics of the ethics of technology. And I'm also going to release it as a separate podcast on its own with its own feed as the ethics of academia for those of you who are just interested in these episodes. Okay, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Sven. And as per usual, the request that I start nearly every episode with applies to this. If you like what you're listening to, please consider rating it, reviewing it, and sharing it online. So thanks very much. And I'm going to hand over now to the conversation that I had with Sven. There's no formal introduction to this, so let me just say by way of introducing Sven, he is a philosopher, an ethicist, who works in the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. But as you'll hear in the course of this conversation, he's worked in a number of jurisdictions over the years, started out working in moral philosophy and the philosophy of, of Kant in particular, but now focuses predominantly on the ethics of technology, which is how I came to encounter him. And he's a very interesting and thoughtful guy and has a lot of, I think, relevant and interesting things to say about the ethics of academia. Okay, um, so you know, one question we might have about academics when it comes to their research is, you know, what kind of duties do they have when it comes to the content or direction of their research? Do you think that academics have a duty to pursue 
socially useful research, or can they simply you know pick whatever topic they happen to like? Yeah, so that's a good question. So at, when I was thinking about this, it seems to me that we should make a distinction here between academics as a group or as a community on the one hand and individual academics on the other. And uh, I would say that as a group or community, certainly we academics have a duty to pursue socially useful research. But I don't think that that translates necessarily into a duty on, uh, on the part of each individual academic to do that as well. And uh, I think that partly has to do with what I think is uh, the need for sort of a division of labor among academics. So some people are going to be, on the one hand, just more interested in or better at socially useful research or let's say directly or immediately socially useful research, whereas others are going to be less interested in that and perhaps better at research that's more purely theoretical or where the social usefulness is not sort of obvious. And so it seems to me that, uh, however, that people tend to benefit by reading a lot of different kinds of research and engaging with colleagues who work on different topics. And so I think that uh, if everyone tried to be socially useful in the research, probably uh, the outcomes would be less, less good than if some people work on that sort of research, whereas others uh, maybe work on the more theoretical research and, and so less obviously immediately socially useful research. So that, I think, creates a better division of labor. And uh, I mean, this also means that there are there, I mean, there are some topics where some people think it's a sort of a waste of time uh, to work on it uh, and that they sort of almost discourage others from working on these topics. And uh, I mean, just some examples that come to mind that I myself have worked on. One would be issues to do with whether robots should have social standing or perhaps even rights. Uh, some people are quite dismissive of that topic. Another topic that comes to mind is uh, different variations of the trolley problem. Should we uh, you know, think about the trolley problem in general? Should we compare the ethics of self-driving cars to the trolley problem? Some people say, no, that's all a waste of time. There's much more useful research that we can do they're thinking about the rights or moral status of robots or about the trolley problem or the trolley problem in relation to self-driving cars. But it seems to me that there's so many of us in academia that not everyone has to work on these things. And if some people do work on them, some good findings may come out. I mean, I, I, well, when it comes to the trolley problem and self-driving cars, probably it's more socially useful than some people think. But in general, then, my take on this whole issue is that we should have a division of labor, uh, people should work on different things, and people will benefit on, from others working on other topics uh, nearby or maybe far away from their own topics so that we can all kind of learn. And in general, when we think about the duties of academics, we shouldn't think only on the individual level, but also on the kind of the group level at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a useful distinction. And it makes sense to say that at an institutional level, we might hope or have the aim of it being socially useful in some sense, but it's not necessarily useful for individuals to think about or conceive of their research in those terms. And actually, in some cases, it might even be counterproductive if you're constantly fixated on the social utility of what you're doing that might actually prevent you or block you from achieving some kind of great insight or advance in knowledge that could turn out to be socially useful. Um, I mean, I, I was going to kind of maybe ask this question later, but it's related to this. But, you know, do you think of your own research in any of these terms? Like, do you, have, do you ever say I'm picking this topic because I think it's socially useful? Or do you just 
you know, pursue what seems to interest you at a particular moment in time? Uh, well, so go go back to this idea of sort of a division of labor and uh, academics as a community. I mean, I think uh, one should try to contribute to debates and discussions that on the whole are, uh, if not directly useful, or at least advanced knowledge in some interesting way. And uh, that is not going to mean, however, that each individual article or conference talk that one does is going to be, you know, help society in any direct way or even help uh, the academic discussion that one is participating in in a direct way. However, I do think that one has a kind of a sort of almost like a duty to kind of keep track of what people are doing in one's field and nearby fields and think about how and if if to what extent one's own work is sort of helping to advance the discussion. Uh, I mean, this is a good idea for not only for, for, for reasons having to do with the, with the duties that academics have, but also in terms of, you know, what makes for publishable, interesting work for others. I mean, if you write stuff that no one else is going to care about, want to cite, want to engage with, then uh, you're also not going to be kind of participating in the research community in a way that others find interesting or that they in the role of a peer reviewer would want to accept your work or want to cite it in their own work. So I think we, I mean, to go back to this distinction that I drew between the duties of the academic community or sub-community within it as a whole versus individual researchers. I mean, so even if I think that individual researchers might have slightly different duties, it might be, in my opinion, part of their duty to sort of keep track of what others are doing and to try to think about how what one is doing is relating to their own their work. I mean, so uh, there m- one might need to look for gaps that people are not filling with their work and try to think about whether there are gaps because they're uninteresting or because no one has just had the opportunity or idea to work on them and to really try to sort of situate what, what one is doing in a, in a bigger uh, uh, context. And then, uh, as I said, that, that might mean that not every individual paper is going to be super important or... Um, have any particular value to it however it may have a kind of systemic value so it may help to uh, inspire others to think about other things or to to, to sort of bring the discussion forward and so uh, you can make a difference between I mean so I have some colleagues working on environmental ethics uh, Marcello De Paola uh, who have written a paper recently together with and he wrote a paper together with Dale Jameson where they talk about the episodic and systemic life of our actions and so by the episodic life of our actions they mean things that are sort of immediately obvious to us and the the immediate effects Uh, and some of those effects may be quite harmless or they might be uh, maybe even bad but then the systemic effects of certain actions can be the opposite so something like you know taking a warm shower going for a ride in a car or taking a flight that might not have any big effect uh, taken in isolation. However, if that's part of a system where people are taking lots of warm showers all the time, driving all the time, taking flights all the time, the effects might be quite big. Uh, I mean, that's a case where the effects, the the systemic effects might be negative, but there could also be things where the systemic effects are positive. So if a lot of academics are working on quite narrow, small topics that on their own seem to not be very important, that could, on a more systemic level, have potentially sort of push forward the state of knowledge and, uh, again, inspire others to uh, to work on certain ideas. And, you know, some papers that discuss something in a very academic, theoretical way might 
use a certain kind of argument that can work as a sort of tool for someone else who is writing on a more immediately useful and uh, perhaps more valuable topic that they can then use that tool and sort of come up with some nice new argument. So, yeah, so I, I really think that one should kind of pay attention to how one's work uh, relates to that of others. And a lot of the value of the work that each individual academic does, I think, has, comes you know, in, in the context of the, the bigger uh, discussion that's going on and the, uh, the ways that we can kind of use uh, and build on uh, uh, each other's ideas. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that as well that there's, uh, and you're hinting at this, there's an epistemic problem when it comes to identifying categories of socially useful research. And that can happen, you know, at an individual level, and possibly even at a kind of systemic level in that, you know, we're not always the best judges of what's useful about our own work or what we write about or what we research. And we also can't predict maybe long term the you know, social value or systemic value of something. I, I guess the quintessential example or the one that springs to mind is something like, you know, work in very abstract parts of mathematical philosophy or logic, you know, the work of people like you know, Bertrand Russell in the early part of the 20th century. It mightn't have seemed like that that work had much social utility at the time. It was, you know, pure theory, pure abstraction. But it turned out to be foundational in computing technology and essentially responsible for the entire digital revolution as a result. So it, it had tremendous social utility, both you know, positive and negative, I guess. But it was hard to know that when you're engaging in that research. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should, I mean, on, we should think in terms of social utility on the one hand, but also, uh, I mean, I think there's a value in uh, knowledge as such and understanding. And so uh, there may be some academic research that doesn't in the end translate into something uh, with a clear social utility but that doesn't necessarily mean that it lacks value it could be that uh, it's uh, you know insight into uh, you know difficult problems and knowledge can also be seen as having a certain value on its own and I mean there's a long history in philosophy talking about the value of self-understanding and I mean there's some interesting work by uh, Thomas Herke about the value of knowledge and he sort of make makes distinctions among different kinds of knowledge and i can't remember the ranking he has but he has something like you know knowledge of the universe self-knowledge knowledge about mundane things and these can all he thinks have sort of different kinds of value and um and when and i like i said he has some sort of ranking but i can't quite remember how he ranks them but i i would imagine that it makes a lot of sense to me at least to think of academic and other research in the same way that some of it is valuable because it you know, promote social goods. Other types of research and knowledge produced might be valuable because it uh, has a certain aesthetic value or it's valuable in, in itself. So, uh, but yeah, like you said, I mean, some value can be unexpected. I mean, I'm thinking also of uh, research outside of the academic world. So I live in Eindhoven in the Netherlands, uh, the home, or I mean, in a certain sense, the former home of Philips, because they've sort of uh, they have some operations in Eindhoven still, but a lot of it's done elsewhere. But back in the heyday of Philips, the company, they they hired scientists to just do sort of fundamental scientific research. And there the idea was that they shouldn't worry about you know, whether that led to producing more, I don't know, electric racers or you know, light bulbs or CD players or whatever. But just it, it could lead to something 
or it would just be interesting and they would publish some papers and, and participate in sort of the academic world. And so that was kind of an interesting model where they had, I think they had three different levels of research. They had the very abstract foundational, they had some sort of middle level that was trying to kind of bridge the more foundational research they were doing to the very practical and then the, the very practical research then that just was about, you know, how can we improve the products that we're developing as a company. So that, that was a kind of an interesting example of this outside of academia. Of course, they, they are working together with the, the local university there to some extent, but and also getting a lot of their uh, people from that university. But it was outside of academia. And nevertheless, they had this idea that uh, foundational research could be worth doing, even if it doesn't directly translate into something that uh, you know would sell them more of their uh, razors or uh, light bulbs or CDs or CD players, etc. Yeah, I guess like Bell Labs in the US is the other famous example of that model, Absolutely. you know, the industrial research lab. I mean, another question is related, and maybe there's a similar answer here when it comes to division of labor. Do you think of academics or yourself in particular, let's say, of, of having a duty to share and promote or explain the research that you do to the general public? Or, you know, should you just focus purely on your academic peers when you're writing papers or coming up with ideas? Yeah, well, I think there are lots of different considerations that go into how one should answer this particular question. I mean, so partly having to do with, you know, what topic is does one do research on? Uh, is one, that's one consideration. Is one good at communicating academic and scientific findings to the general public? Second consideration. And third, uh, does one enjoy it? And so I think, uh, you know, if you are doing research about a topic that has a kind of uh, great public interest uh, and second you are also good at communicating your research to the general public and also third you enjoy it then it's pretty clear that there would be sort of uh, I don't know you would be wasting resources if you didn't actually uh, you know it would be an opportunity missed if you didn't try to communicate your research to the general public I mean in my own case I do a lot of research about the ethics of technology uh, robotics and artificial intelligence and things like that and I think that's a topic where uh, I mean on the one hand there's a lot of interest from the public people are interested in things such as self-driving cars sex robots uh, and uh, you know autonomous weapon systems and other things I do research on so I often well I often might be an exaggeration but I frequently get requests of different kinds to speak in non-academic settings or to do interviews whatever it might be and uh, I, I well I'm not sure I'm, I'm good at it but I certainly enjoy it and so I think you know, why not if it's a topic that uh, people are interested in and that is important uh, and also that's something one enjoys doing, then I think one should should do it. Uh, if one is good at it uh, but one doesn't enjoy it, then maybe you have some degree of duty to you know, promote your research in wider circles. If you're bad at it but you do enjoy it, then I think you could still do it because usually if someone is passionate about something, that can be inspiring for others even if they're not the best communicators or, or, or whatever it might be so I mean if you're if you're not interested uh, in doing this and if you're not good at it and you're doing something that's quite theoretical then I, I think there's no duty for a researcher to, to engage in public uh, communication of their research uh, given again the fact that there are others who do it who do it well and who enjoy doing it and again we can go back to this idea about uh, you know division of labor between 
the field or, or the academics as a whole on the one hand and individual academics on the other. So long as there are others who are doing it and are doing it well, then, you know, not everyone has to do it. Uh, here, though, I, you know, again, one I think one should pay attention to are people doing enough within one's subfield or field to promote the research, the findings and communicate those? Are they doing a good enough job? If, if the answer is no to those kinds of questions, then you know, one might need to step forward and, and try to, to do more of it oneself. And also, it's also one of those things where if most people just did a little bit more of it, then uh, that sort of the, the burden on any individual researcher would be quite light. Uh, on the other hand, of course, the, the more people do it, the more practice they get, the better at it they become. So, um, but yeah, I, I would again go back to this whole principle of, of uh, you know, thinking of it in terms of a division of labor and thinking in terms of what the duties are of the uh, com individual members of the community on the one hand or the academic community as a whole. And certainly as a whole, we do have a research, uh, do have a kind of duty, I think, to promote and uh, explain our research to the general public, especially if you do work on things such as the ethics of technology or other things that are of sort of immediate importance to people outside of academia itself. What do you think about your own research? I mean, do you think of it as having a particular moral or, or social value? And if so, what is it like? I mean, do, do you have any sense of what the, the chief contribution of your own work is? Or yeah. do you just not think about that at all? Uh, well, I mean, I, I do think about it. And, and like I said before, I think uh, uh, each individual paper is not going to be necessarily valuable. And some of them are uh, more experimental. I mean, so... Uh, I mean, so I've written about things such as, you know, can, can humans and robots love each other? Can they be friends? Uh, I mean, maybe there are enough people out there. And I mean, actually, this is one of the topics that people sometimes want to interview me about. And uh, the Dutch in particular seem to be quite interested in this. I've done a few different interviews with different uh, level Dutch media about this particular topic. So there certainly seems to be a, something that fascinates people. And uh, I mean, another topic I mentioned before is uh, the topic of sex robots. That seems to be something that people in the media, at the very least, are very interested in. So, uh, you know, you sometimes get requests to talk about that. Uh, I mean, I don't know that. I mean, some of that research, I think, is important. I mean, there are uh, very important sort of feminist objections to uh, sex robots or certain kinds of sex robots or certain ways of interacting with them. And I think it's important to uh, have people think about that and uh, do so in a kind of careful and analytical uh, way as opposed to just having like quick reactions. And I mean, there are I mean, tabloid media some will frequently uh, contact academics who work on this topic, myself included, and I think you as well in the past, to ask them to, for interviews. And on some occasions I've said, no, I think this is not the right forum for this kind of topic because it's, uh, it is you know a little bit more complex than maybe tabloid media would be able to kind of present it to their readership. Uh, but uh, going back to the question, if uh, the kind of research I'm doing has value, I mean, I think that the, the general topic, I mean, ethics, more generally, I mean, I do a little bit of more general ethical research, uh, you know, in moral philosophy, and then a lot of my research is in applied ethics. And as I said before, in sort of the ethics of robotics and artificial intelligence, I mean, I think those are interesting and important topics in themselves, uh, not only from the point of view of sort of just advancing knowledge and, you know, self-understanding and insight, but also because there are very big risks uh, and also po possible benefits involved. And so, uh, 
I mean, some people who do ethics of technology, they think about which things should be forbidden and which things should be banned, which things should be permitted or allowed. Uh, I'm more interested in how we can think about how to steer these uh, developments in, in the, sort of the right directions and what kind of values uh, should ideally be promoted. Uh, and, uh, you know, to, to try to steer a middle path between uh, strong uh, techno-optimism on the one hand and sort of strong techno-pessimism on the other. And I think that's a valuable thing to do because uh, in a lot of, uh, I mean, not all, but a lot of non-academic settings, uh, people tend to, especially in the sort of current social media climate, to be very extreme in their uh, points of view about things. I mean, they, they find something that they disapprove of and then they, you know, want to cancel that thing or they uh, uh, criticizes it in very strong terms and so I think it's important that people in academia uh, do more nuanced and careful thinking about uh, these, you know, technological developments and other kinds of developments and so I definitely see that as a, as a valuable thing. I mean here too there's a kind of division of labor between uh, I think academics and non-academics. I mean I, I do think that there's a value in, uh, in thinking about new developments and technologies in a more kind of uh, I don't know, uh, uh, black and white sort of way, you know, what's, what strikes one uh, on first glance as good or bad or as, you know, shocking or whatever. But then there certainly is a value to think about things in a more careful way, breaking them down, trying to, you know, slow down a discussion a little bit, you know, breaking it into smaller parts and thinking more calmly about uh, these kinds of topics, especially ones that maybe are quite upsetting when you first think about them, you know, in a, at, at first glance, so to speak. Yeah, and I think this is related as well, but kind of shifting gears slightly to the topic of teaching, kind of one of the yeah. other pillars of academic work. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about your own kind of teaching context, you know, what, what it is you teach and who do you teach? And and then we can ask a question about the kind of moral value of it. But yeah, like what, what subjects do you teach and what kinds of students do you teach? Yeah, so well, I've taught at... Uh a few different universities by now, and I've taught many different kinds of students uh, in different uh, pro study programs that they're doing. So I have a lot of experience of different sort of students. So I, uh, I mean, at the moment, I primarily teach philosophy students, people who are doing uh, uh, sort of either minor or major as a, you know, in their BA program or uh, who do either a MA in applied ethics or in just what in the Netherlands is called a research master in philosophy. And of course, I also supervise a lot of uh, PhD students. But in the past, I mean, I, I, I worked uh, at a technical university. And so I already mentioned I, I live in Eindhoven where there's a technical university where I worked for five years, uh, almost five years. And then there I taught a lot of engineering students of different kinds and also architecture students and all sorts of students who are not studying philosophy. Uh, I mean, I also have experience with teaching people who are starting to become teachers. Uh, so I have a lot of experience with different kinds of students. And I've also taught quite a wide range of topics in philosophy. I mean, sort of intro to philosophy, philosophy, religion, things like that. But primarily different uh, courses within practical philosophy or ethics. Uh, and I mean, at the moment, what I'm teaching are things like environmental ethics. Uh, I think I teach intro to ethics. Uh, medical ethics, uh, ethics of technology, and I do a lot of, as I said, supervision of MA and PhD students. And I mean, I think it's a good thing. I mean, and it's a healthy thing for for teachers at the, at the university to have to get experience with different kinds of students. 
because if you only teach uh, uh, philosophy students all the time, people who are specifically going to the university to, to, to study philosophy, uh, I mean, you they differ quite a bit in their style of you know what they're interested in, how, how they like material to be presented to them, and also what they will do with what they learn. I mean, uh, as I said before, I, I definitely think that there's a value in just studying philosophy for its own sake and uh, and you know treating it as an end in itself. It doesn't have to be means to other things. However, on the other hand, I think it's really valuable to teach uh, moral philosophy and things like the ethics of technology to engineering students uh, and and uh, people who maybe study in other programs. I mean, I uh, one of the programs I'm involved with at my university at Utrecht is uh, the a PPE program, uh, philosophy, politics, and economics, and so there you have people who are maybe uh, they are primarily to study politics, or maybe they are primarily to study economics or philosophy. So you get a nice mix, and um, it's I think even for the for those students who are not philosophy majors, uh, I mean a subset of them may take the ideas that they learn about uh, you know, when it comes to ethics and philosophy and maybe do something socially useful with them. But, I mean, and some of them also find that when they take an ethics course that is really interesting to them, they had never heard about this sort of thing before. And so they get inspired and maybe some of them may even switch over to philosophy. And I sometimes feel bad for them because maybe their career prospects would be better if they stayed with engineering. But, you know, you, you, it's good to have philosophers, of course, also. But... I don't think that the only value is, uh, again, sort of immediate social utility. I mean, also have a, I mean, partly old-fashioned idea that uh, the idea of, you know, studying philosophy and learning about different kind of ideas has a sort of value of, of its own. Uh, and uh, I think, again, I sometimes worry that uh, the climate that we're in with social media now does not uh, sort of promote or encourage careful, slow thinking. And so I think there's a great value of just having people slowing down a little bit and thinking about things more carefully, more analytically. And uh, so Daniel Dennett has this term, thinking tools. It's nice, I think, to give students new sort of thinking tools that they can use when they think, whether it's about philosophy, if they're philosophy students, but also if they're in other fields, it can be maybe inspiring to learn about different ideas. I mean, some, some famous people in the tech world, I mean, Bill Gates and others, they often talk about how they read a lot of books of, on all sorts of topics, get inspired by things that maybe initially when they pick up a certain book that doesn't seem to have anything to do with what they're working on. But nevertheless, there's something that just triggers a new idea. So, so yeah, I think that's uh, uh, those are all things that I care about related to teaching. Of course, it also is an issue of you know what level are you teaching the students at? If they're BA students then maybe your goals uh, in teaching are different than if you're teaching MA or PhD students, especially if those MA or PhD students are in philosophy and they want to go on to have a career as an academics in philosophy. I think then you have to teach them uh, not just about ideas and the content, so to speak, but also about skills that they would need to succeed as academics. You know, for example, how do you write uh, successfully a, a, a journal article that was going to be likely to be published and accepted? How do you do a conference presentation that people will you know, find interesting and take something away from? Uh, how do you uh, write grant proposals, etc.? So those kinds of things might be totally uninteresting to BA students. Uh, well, uh, there might be a subset of the BA students who want to go on to be MA and PhD students. For, for them, it might be interesting. But I think one really has to think in terms of what 
type of student and what level are they at and what do they want to go on to do after they're done with their studies. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it, that's interesting that there's a lot of complexity there because you're talking about different cohorts of students with different interests and backgrounds, different levels of experience. And so there's kind of many different aims to teaching and you kind of tie it to the context and the student and the program as to exactly what it is you're, you're trying to achieve or what you think the, the chief purpose is of what you're doing. But it seems like you're kind of pitching at multiple levels, both in terms of the instrumental value of the skills or thinking tools that you're providing people with, but also then the kind of intrinsic value of the knowledge or the fascination with the subject matter itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've also had opportunity to think about some of these things because I'm uh, well, I'm on the curriculum committee for the research master program at my university. I've been uh, during the last couple of months, I've been filling in as the, the director of the applied ethics master program. And also at the national level in the Netherlands, I'm on the board of the as what's called the Dutch Research School in Philosophy. Uh, and so, you know, in this context, you know, one has to sometimes zoom out a little bit and think about the aims of philosophy education and uh, on different levels and what the goals are. And I think I, you quickly see that, you know, you, you can't think uh, along the same lines on all levels and also because uh, I mean again as, uh, even within the the class of PhD students I mean a lot of them do want to go, go on to be, be academics but I mean I recently just worked with a PhD students who had no interest in that uh, but she nevertheless wanted to do an, a PhD I mean that wasn't in philosophy that's in STS science and technology studies uh, and then you know you might need to try to tailor your advice that you give a little bit to someone like that who, who doesn't I mean you then maybe learning how to write uh, journal articles and, and publish and, and you know do conference presentations for academics is maybe less relevant than for someone who really sort of has a burning desire so to speak to become a professional academic themselves yeah I, I don't know if you have an opinion on this but I've recently written a bit about it and I'm somewhat skeptical as to whether at least my own teaching achieves the aims that I kind of set out for it. Uh, I mean, in the sense that I teach very large numbers of students, just to be clear here. So I, I typically lecture to students, to classes of, you know, 150 plus students. I don't I do not do much small group teaching or seminar-based teaching. So that might have an impact on my attitude towards this. But, you know, I, I look at a lot of the evidence on kind of memory and retention and whether different teaching styles achieve certain ends and I see a lot of grounds to be skeptical like it's never obvious to me that my teaching makes any kind of critical difference to somebody's life or to you know whether they develop a relevant skill or retain a bit of knowledge or information uh, maybe that shouldn't be the standard that I set for myself but um, yeah I don't know if you have any thoughts about that as to whether teaching is successful in achieving these kinds of ends that you've identified yeah, well, I mean, as you say, I mean, uh, you the, the the larger the group of students you have in a certain class, I mean, the the, the bigger the number of people who maybe doesn't uh, go away with or you know with all the skills that you would want to have them uh, leave them with, so to speak, and uh, some of them are not going to find it interesting and uh, and so on and so forth. But uh, I do think that um, uh, you know we, I mean, he, here too, you can think about. Uh, uh, again, this has to do a little bit with my having been on uh, cur curriculum committees and, you know, these different uh, bodies that think about teaching. I mean, so 
And maybe one teacher, you know, has a certain style and that uh, appeals to some students, not others. Then other stu- teachers have a slightly different style that's going to appeal to other students. I, th- I think it's important that the teachers have some degree of freedom and uh, to, you know, to try to develop their own style and not everyone should do the same. And then I've been involved in some experiments with all teachers are, are supposed to try a new style of teaching where some of them are just don't have the skill set that is required to kind of succeed. And it, it's just not interesting for the students, uh, frustrating for the teachers. But if you know some people are more experimental, try new things, and others maybe do some more old school teaching, then I think that that's nice for the students to kind of be exposed to different teaching styles and methods. I mean, as you were talking there, you were talking about whether you know the students in your class are going to find it interesting or appealing what you're teaching them, and there are big numbers. And it seems to me that, I mean, I do think that students have. A kind of a, almost like an obligation to to try to pay attention and, and and to you know to not be on their cell phones or at least not throughout the whole lecture whole, whole class and to try to make an effort to read the material. But on this on the part of the teacher, that then I think translates into a corresponding uh, duty to try to make their teaching interesting and to try to bring a little bit of variation into the teaching. And so uh, that. Again, that's as some students may prefer that you know, having the one format and just have every session be exactly the same. But uh, quite often, uh, you know, if you bring in a guest lecturer, I mean, you have come to my class on a couple of occasions. That's always been very popular. Uh, I mean, I taught a class recently uh, where I had you as a guest and I had another guest come later. And then uh, I think that this variation and then trying some different things in one own, one's own teaching will make students pay more attention and find it more interesting. Will they learn more? I mean, maybe some of them, maybe some of them not. But but yeah, I think you know we we we, we can never hope to get, achieve the goal of you know the learning goals for each individual student. I mean that would be way too ambitious. But uh, I think one can try different things to maybe you know have a slightly bigger group of students who. Uh, do the things that you would want want them to do. You know, find it interesting, learn certain skills, take some ideas with them. And again, it's it can be quite unexpected. I mean, uh, sometimes students that come in quite skeptical, maybe let's say engineering students. To go back to that example, you uh, present certain examples to them, and you talk about how some you know figures in the tech world. I mean, whether Elon Musk or Bill Gates or whoever it might be, Steve Jobs. Have they have said something about a certain issue and suddenly uh, it, the, the topic becomes interesting for them too and they find that maybe they want to take maybe even one more ethics course or whatever it might be. So you never know. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there this kind of duties, the reciprocal duties of teachers vis-a-vis their students. So you know, students have the duty to pay attention and concentrate and teachers have a duty to try to be interesting and engaging. Are there any other kinds of duties that you think of in the classroom? You know, what teachers owe their students and what students owe their teachers? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing uh, that I think about quite a lot, and that's, of of course, also discussed a lot, is the uh, idea of diversity. And so I think, uh, you know, we should try to expose our students to a wide range of authors and ideas and viewpoints. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be totally neutral and not sort of communicate to our students maybe what our own primary interests are or maybe our points of view about different topics. However, um, I think, uh, I mean, 
when we're all very much in our own filter bubbles these days and uh, some ideas are treated in some filter bubbles as being sort of totally uh, you know, uh, excluded from consideration and one should just reject them without discussing them. Uh, the university is a really good place where these ideas that are, are maybe in some context is not paid attention to at all can be introduced, can be looked at, uh, it can be critically. But yeah, so I think the idea of exposing people to a wider range of ideas than they would if they don't go to university, that is a duty that uh, teachers have. Uh, this can this can take on a kind of political dimension to it, uh, which I think can be okay. But uh, one worry that I have sometimes myself had is that in some contexts uh, where, uh, I mean, I was at one university uh, in the South, in America, uh, in, in North Carolina and in, in the U.S. South, where that town in Chapel Hill is pretty liberal. And so, and, and most of the university faculty are quite liberal as well. And in some talks and things like that, uh, there was a sort of atmosphere that uh, they were assuming that everyone was going to be liberal, but some faculty members and some students, I'm actually a lot of the students were maybe not super liberal, but that was the kind of treated as, you know, the thing to be and, and nothing else was, uh, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. There was more nuanced than this, but I think it's important in this in these settings where maybe there's a majority of the teachers and students of, that maybe are leaning one way politically to then maybe try to think about the fact that there are also going to be both students and teachers who are maybe more conservative or more moderate or whatever it might be, and so that they don't feel that they're being excluded. Of course, this goes also goes the other way around. So if there's a more conservative setting and there are some liberal students, then they should be also be included. And again. One can, in the university setting, you can slow down, talk about ideas more, you know, more analytically uh, over several weeks. And uh, so, yeah, diversity of viewpoints, all of them treated with respect, I think, is a very important ideal for the university setting. I don't know if you ever teach like your own material, your own stuff, but like if you do... Do you share your own opinions or, or if you think that you might be biased or lean in a particular direction on a topic, do you say, look, this is, this is what I think about it? Or do you try to be very like, strictly neutral in the way in which you present ideas? Um, well, I mean, I, I do use some of my own writings in teaching because I always try to write my research in a way that, so that it could be used in teaching. And sometimes uh, when I'm putting a class together, uh, you know, I just throw in a, an article or two of my own. Uh, but... Like I said, before, like, I, I don't think that there's anything bad with sort of taking a stand, but uh, you know, at the same time, then you have to kind of work extra hard to uh, highlight the merits of uh, alternative viewpoints. And uh, so, I, I mean, some people have this idea that you should never assign your own work and or never discuss it. But uh, it seems to me that, um, well, first of all, you you tend to know it quite well, and also. Uh, hopefully your own work will also engage with other work and then you can assign some of the other work that you maybe are talking about in your own papers or whatever it might be. Uh, and then maybe you know some of the authors, you can invite them to come to your class. And a lot of students, I think, usually find that it, find this interesting. Uh, I mean, I've, I've sometimes taught classes where I've, I've not at all hinted at my own points of view about things and I've not designed any of my own material. And then sometimes towards the end of the class, they say, oh, but what, what, what do you think about this? We want to know. 
So uh, there's always going to be sort of a, a number of students who want to engage with someone who has certain convictions and to talk with them about those ideas. And then, uh, you know, you want to create a kind of atmosphere where they would feel comfortable uh, challenging you and uh, where it's, there, there's not a sense in the classroom that everyone else has to kind of, you know, fall into line and, and have the same point of view as the teacher. I mean, that, that you should certainly avoid in my opinion. So I think, you know, you want to promote a kind of mutually respectful but friendly and also critical atmosphere where people can feel that they can speak and disagree with each other and also disagree with the, the teacher, especially if the teacher has assigned maybe one or, or two of her his or her own things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that the idea that you, you should, shouldn't always shy away from teaching your own stuff and you should try and foster this kind of open and uh, respectful dialogue, slowing things down. I think sometimes it's harder or easier said than done. I know, you know, my, some of my own experience with classes that I, I think I'm doing a good job in fostering an open debate and dialogue. I'm thinking in particular of a critical thinking based class I did a few years ago, where you know a large portion of the class was you know, opposing traditional thought experiments, variations on those thought experiments, and getting students to d say what their intuition was and and what's the rationalization for that, and then challenging them with an alternative. Uh, counterexample or hypothetical scenario that seemed to cast doubt on that judgment that they had. And, you know, I thought this was good because it was encouraging them to be kind of critically reflective on their own ideas and to see their opinions as things that are defeasible, can be challenged and reassessed and so forth. But it turned out like when I got feedback from students that a lot of them found the class very intimidating and they felt that they were constantly being challenged and disoriented in a way that they found uncomfortable. Now, I think some people might argue that was a good thing about the teaching, that teaching should in some sense be uncomfortable in a, at least in a cognitive, critical thinking way, not uncomfortable in a, maybe an emotional or way. But it, it's a fine line, I think, between those two things sometimes. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I, I'm very unconfrontational in my teaching style so i think that students uh, i mean they may have they have uh, other complaints about my class but I, I they i think i've never had them say that they were intimidating intimidating or anything like that but i definitely agree though that they uh they should be challenged i mean uh, and also be challenged and be forced i mean not i mean forces not I mean not to be encouraged to read things that they may be find uh and are shocking or that you know why did were we assigned this i mean i recently taught a class on environmental ethics and we read uh the book uh why worry about future generations by samuel scheffler and one of the students said i googled samuel scheffler and he is a, a white male in his 70s so why should i listen to what he says about future generations uh it seemed to i mean i didn't make a big deal out of it but i I, this was a moment where I felt that if <laughs> a more confrontational person would have had a good teaching, op teaching opportunity to say, like, you know, actually, you know, you should listen to different points of view and not just one profile a person. And even if uh, Samuel Sheffer is a white male in the 70s, it could be that he has interesting things to say about future generations, which, of course, he, I, I mean, I think he does have. So, so yeah, I, I, I would agree with the general idea that we should challenge students and uh, sometimes make it a little bit uncomfortable for them. Uh, it's not really my style. I mean, I maybe try to do it more subtly and just what I assigned in terms of readings. But I do th see a value in having 
uh, some teachers using that style of teaching. And then, of course, it, it's maybe they, there can be other teachers who has this, I don't know, softer approach, so to speak, so that the students are exposed uh, to not only different materials that they're reading and ideas, but also different styles of teacher, uh, some of which may challenge them in terms of a lot of assignments and a lot of writing and that they have to do with a lot of reading. And some of them maybe uh, challenge the students in terms of the, the, the need to kind of articulate and defend uh, arguments and then be, be, be open to getting criticized uh, constructively, of course, uh, when they try to formulate an, uh, those ideas that they have. Yeah, and I, I mean, to be clear, my, you know, part of this might be the, the expectations as well, like come from a, a legal background and, you know, the traditional law school classroom, certainly in the US style, is, is quite confrontational. It's about the Socratic method of teaching where you call upon students right. to defend a particular interpretation of a case and then you challenge them with hypotheticals. So there might be different cultural norms. I'm not saying that's the, the norm in the institutions that I speak in or teach in, but... Um, I think it's probably more expected in in law, particularly when in, in law you're kind of expected to defend things from different points of view anyway because it's sort of intrinsic to the adversarial legal system that we have in, in Ireland and maybe less so in other jurisdictions. Um, I wanted to move on to a question about the kinds of relationships that you should or should not foster with students. I mean, there's a lot written, obviously, about sexual harassment and sexual relationships between teachers and students that I don't want to revisit or going to relitigate unless you have something you want to share on that that is particularly insightful because as i say there's a lot been said about it over the years i wanted to you know use that though as a springboard for a different kind of question is that, that you know we assume that and accept the consensus that um you know sexual or intimate relationships with students are in improper for a variety of reasons what kinds of relationships are proper with students you know should you be very kind of distant and professional with students? Should you be friendly with students? Should you try to foster some kind of friendship type relationship with students? Is that even possible? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that you should be friendly, but you shouldn't be friends with your students. And uh, I think here that we should also make a kind of distinction between uh, students, uh, uh, you know, maybe at the BA, MA and PhD level. Certainly with the BA students, I mean, obviously you should be friendly and respectful, but, uh, you know, friendship with the students, I think, is probably not appropriate. So if you if you do want to be friends or have, you know, I mean, even romantic relationships, then definitely you shouldn't be their teacher. And so, uh, and I mean, I, there, there are many issues with that. So like, let, and like you said, let's set that aside. I mean, I, I think, yeah, friendly, but not friends. And then... But but when people start becoming MA and then PhD students, I think we should more and more think of them as sort of colleagues in training, so to speak. So this, uh, I mean, I've definitely had the experience with people who uh, have been PhD students uh, that I've been, you know, coaching in different ways and who then go on to become postdocs and then, you know, become, you know, higher up in the academic uh, hierarchy. Then, you, you know, you, you become more and more. I mean, equal in terms of academic rank, but maybe also more, you know, friends, uh, so to speak. But uh, uh, and I think it's important that you that you uh, coach them and that you help them with the idea that some of these people are going to be your future colleagues. And so you partly I mean, you're doing yourself a favor by trying trying to make them good to good colleagues, so to speak. And of course, you can learn from them and uh, at the same time. But 
Yeah, I when it comes to BA students at that level, bachelor students, yeah, then uh, I think one should probably be somewhat distant. I mean, at least that's what I prefer. Uh, I I do always try to keep a kind of a friendly, nice atmosphere in the classroom, but uh, uh, and you know, if there's a coffee machine, I might chat with them a little bit during the break. But I, I think a slightly distant uh, relationship is best. At, Partly for the reason that, you know, you at the end of the course, you're going to be grading them. And uh, I mean, one thing I like about the PhD and MA levels is that there, a lot of the, I mean, if you do grading at all, it's often, uh, I mean, if, if you're uh, assessing, a, um, this depends, of course, what country you're in. So uh, I've been uh, acting as an external examiner of a PhD thesis in uh, the UK and Ireland and there. Uh, the advisor is not even on the committee. I mean, there's an internal examiner and external examiner, so the advisors have nothing to do with the defense. In other places, like the US, where I got my PhD, and then also in the Netherlands, where I work now, and in Germany, uh, where I also have worked, I mean, there the advisors are going to be also on the committee assessing the thesis. There it's really nice then that there's a committee of others, uh, more or less independent, who will kind of help to assess the work of the student. Uh, I mean, even at the MA level, I find that to be quite good. So at the, in my university, when people write MA theses, uh, depending on what program you're in, there's either one or two uh, additional people, a second reader and sometimes a third reader, that will help to as, uh, grade and assess the MA thesis. And that, uh, in a certain sense, I think this allows you to be more friendly with the students uh, because someone else is going to do some of the grading. I think if you're too friendly with the students and then you have to go and grade them, that creates a kind of conflict of interest or at least awkwardness, if nothing else. And so just for the reason that you are going to, well, among, among, among the reasons why it's a good idea not to be too friendly with your BA students is that usually you are maybe the only one grading them. In some courses, you may have a teaching assistant who will grade uh, some of the students uh, in some Cases you're lucky enough that your teaching assistant is going to grade all of the students, but quite frequently you do some of the grading. And I think that the more you do grading, the less you should be friends with them and the more there should be sort of a professional relationship. Again, friendly, but not friendship. Yeah, no, I think that's a good formulation. And I agree that the grading element is kind of crucial here. If you're standing in judgment of somebody as to whether they've met the learning goals or whatever for your course... It does seem problematic to me if you foster anything more than a kind of basic friendliness and respect because you're opening yourself to accusations of, of bias and um, unfairness and you, you quite possibly could be swayed by judgments. I mean, before my institution introduced anonymous grading for BA level or undergraduate students, I would see the names of students on the scripts or the essays that they would submit. And I'm... You know, even though I'd like to convince myself that I didn't pay attention to it, I definitely probably was m more favorable to students that I knew or happened to like in some way because they were more talkative in class or I had some kind of interaction with them. Maybe I wrote a reference for them or something like that. You know, So I think those judgments do affect our grading practices and um, any kind of friendliness or... Anything more than that kind of professional relationship, I think, is problematic in that that context. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This this sort of links into another question, though, that I wanted to ask about grading. And you know, you mentioned one aspect of the ethics of grading. There, do you ever worry about the ethics of grading and assessment? I'm thinking in particular here 
in my own case, I worry sometimes about seemingly arbitrary distinctions that I draw between students. Um, it depends a bit on your grading metric system, but you know we use a percentage-based grading system where uh, I work. And you know, I the difference between a student who gets like a sixty-four or a sixty-two, I'm not sure there is a huge difference between them, and I'm not sure if I can defend it. So I worry sometimes about arbitrary distinctions that I draw between different assignments for different students. But I also then worry a little bit about like the longer-term implications of of grading, and obviously there's concerns about grade inflation. And I think if those are true and if they're borne out, I think a lot of them are driven by a kind of ethical concern that um, professors or teachers have for their students. Like one thing I'm thinking of here is that, so I teach in a law school, a lot of law firms won't even look at a student if they don't get what's called like a 2-1 grade average in, in Ireland or the UK. So sort of a, a grade average that's in the 60s. And so there's a huge pressure on students to get that 2-1 and they kind of feel their degree has been a waste of time or that they're failures if they don't get it because they won't have the same employment opportunities. And I think that also puts pressure on us as teachers to try and be very favorable or generous to them to make sure that they get that grade. Uh, yeah, do, I mean, do you ever think about these kinds of ethical quandaries when you're grading things? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, partly because uh, uh, one of the minor undergraduate or BA degrees uh, that we have at my university is a kind of preparatory program for people who want to get into uh, an, one of the MA programs that we have. Uh, and so, uh, and we have a kind of a rule that unless you get a certain uh, average grade, you, you can't go on to the MA. And so, sometimes you only have students who you know are really motivated uh, and maybe are, uh, you know, have lots of good qualities, but somehow they just don't perform well uh, at, at, at the test or when they write their papers. You know, you sometimes feel a kind of conflict. I mean, so on the one hand, maybe that means that they're not well suited for the MA program. But on the other hand, that just might mean that they haven't quite learned how to do this kind of writing yet. And I mean, because I mean, we, we all know from our own experience that learning to write academic papers uh, and, and perform well, you know, in different settings. That I mean, it's a skill that you have to learn and practice. And so maybe they just haven't gotten the right amount, kind of training or right amount of it yet, and that they would later be able to perform well. So that's one very concrete setting in which I, I think about this. But uh, the way I try to counteract this a little bit in my own practice is that when I am on assessment committees uh, or hiring committees for, I mean, in the Nether in the Netherlands, you, when you start a PhD, you're basically hired into the university as a, as a short-term four-year employee. So we have, have uh, job interviews with uh, hiring committees that we put together. And so I usually try not to look too much at the grades and to try to, I mean, look at that partly, but also look at the other aspects of the applications much more uh, carefully. Uh, partly also because I know that uh, it, a lot of the students applying for these positions, they also come from the Netherlands. And then in the Netherlands, there are different grading cultures at different universities. So if you get a certain grade at one university, uh, you might have gotten a different one at a different one. And so I think, in the, if, if I remember correctly, I think at Cambridge in the UK, the grading culture is quite strict. And so if you get a certain grade there, it's going to be, you know, that might mean that you performed at a level where you've gotten a quite different grade at a different UK university. So there, I certainly try to not look too much at the grades. And I know I mean, there's a similar thing in America 
where if you do a PhD uh, there, uh, as I did, you uh, for a lot of universities have to take something called the GRE, which is a t- sort of test uh, in general. You know, it's almost like an IQ test that you do if you want to go to grad school. And uh, I know that some people assessing candidates, uh, even though it's a formal requirement that they have to look at GRE scores, they, they take that with a grain of salt because they know that some students will have done a lot of prepping and taken courses on how to sort of perform well uh, in the GRE. Uh, and others haven't because they maybe didn't have time or they couldn't afford it or they didn't know that that would be a good idea, etc. So uh, some people then maybe look at the GRE score, but don't only look at that and don't take it too seriously. Whereas there are some other grad programs where things are a little bit like in this uh, law uh, setting that you mentioned, where unless you have a certain GRE score, you just ruled out automatically. Uh, that, of course, can be convenient for people on higher uh, you know, admissions committees because that can be a way of sorting out some candidates and having a smaller pool of applicants to look at. But it can, that, I think, is can be a moral problem because uh, there might be people who, uh, you know, for whatever reason, just didn't do well on that part, but who maybe would flourish in the program and do much better than some of the people that maybe did have very high scores on the GRE or had high grades or whatever. So. Yeah, I, I definitely worry about it both in the role of grader, but also in the role of uh, being someone who would admit people into programs or to hire them as PhD students. Yeah, and actually, I mean, even when you mentioned that, to some extent, the grading practices that we have, even if we think we have good intentions behind them, can be counterproductive. So, I mean, to, to run with the example that I had of you know, trying to ensure the students get a certain grade average in order to be more likely to get a job interview, let's say, the problem with doing that, is, and I noticed it this year actually in our results, is that something like 60 or 70% of our students got grades within that kind of 60 to 69 band, which is a, a huge re- representation of our class. And there's many reasons why that might have happened. It's not just because of grading practices. It might also be the quality of the students, different assessment methods that we had to apply f- due to online teaching. But... One consequence of that for a hiring committee is that they have to use some other criteria or a criterion to discriminate between candidates. And I know it's like a lot of, again, legal employers are using different kinds of aptitude tests now as a way of um, kind of discriminating. So it's not just your results in university. They are now getting you to take another kind of test to see if you have the aptitude for the job. So uh, these things often have perverse consequences that we don't fully appreciate. Um, if I could move on then just to kind of the last couple of questions. So we, we've talked about research and teaching. The other thing about being an academic is that, you know, you work usually within an, an institution, often quite a large institution that has certain kinds of management practices, work practices, and you often contribute to the administration and management of that institution as well in various ways. Uh, I mean, a general question here is like, what do you think about the employment conditions of academics? Do you think it is a very desirable form of employment, very meaningful form of employment? Or do you think there are ways in which modern academia is unjust or exploitative? Uh, Yeah, well, I personally have worked in four different countries, the Sweden, uh, United States, uh, Germany, and the Netherlands. And uh, the, the systems are very different in all of those. And even within the countries, there might be, I mean, especially in America, for example, all sorts of different types of academic jobs. The same applies to the Netherlands and the other places I mentioned. Uh, And so uh, we shouldn't 
generalized. And so we, should, we have to be quite specific. So if we, have, we might look at a context of, I mean, you're in Ireland, I'm sure the system is somewhat similar to the UK system, but there might be subtle differences. And so whether, uh, you know, the, it's a good job for the person who has it, it's, it's going to depend a lot on what country you're in, uh, you know, at what position, at what career stage. And another complication is that uh, some of us may be super interested in, let's say, research and maybe also like teaching and then maybe or like, uh, you know, university politics and want to kind of take on leadership positions. But others are going to be much more interested in perhaps only teaching, perhaps only research or perhaps only kind of, I don't know, climbing up the uh, managerial or uh, type of hierarchy at the university. And so I think universities should be a setting where you have different kinds of a career paths uh, on offer, so to speak, so that if someone maybe is a very skilled teacher and really excels as teaching, as some people do, and they love it, and they, they develop new teaching ideas and new skills and they experiment with things, uh, and maybe they do research, but maybe a little bit less of it, then uh, you know that should be one way of you know, succeeding at the university, just as, uh, you know, be, maybe being a really good researcher, being okay, maybe a teacher, maybe there's room for improvement or whatever. Uh, but that should be another way of doing things. And so I think we should try to tailor things a little bit to people's strengths and, 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 and skills. Uh, and, and also, like I said, not everyone, uh, we often tend to assume as academics that everyone loves research. I, mean, I certainly do myself and do a lot of it, but, uh, I, you know, not everyone is like that. And so there's, there's nothing wrong with not being interested in, in research and writing primarily, but instead wanting to do other things at the university. So that, I think, is something that we need to uh, think about when we think about, you know, on what basis should people get permanent contract? On what basis should they get uh, be promoted? Uh, should there be different kinds of tracks? Uh, I mean, I've worked at different universities, some of which have had very clear criteria if you kind of tick these boxes, then you, you, you get a permanent contract or you get promoted. Other universities work with more vague criteria. Uh, that can leave more room for sort of more individualized assessments of researchers, but it can also make it unclear and vague, like who gets a permanent contract or who gets you know, promoted. And so um, I think this is a really tough topic. I mean, I see strengths and weaknesses of both those options, because as I said, I really think that we should look at uh, different people's skills and interests and, and try to think about, you know, how can, uh, you know, we assess them, you know, given what they do and do well versus other people. But on the other hand, uh, then that might mean that the criteria for getting a permanent contract or being promoted or whatever can be unclear and vague and intransparent. And that can, you know, give rise to kind of justice issues where it can seem unfair that some people are and some people aren't uh, you know, pr promoted or whatever. So definitely, a difficult question and I mean here we should also keep in mind that there are some people who maybe do a postdoc at the university but they do that because they want to go on to work and maybe in research in other contexts again I mean there are also people who did PhD uh, projects because they want to work in other contexts and this is also going to be a difference between different countries I think uh, I mean, my sense is I'm not sure that this is true but my sense is that for example in Germany uh, there might be a little bit more common sort of situation where someone does a PhD, not because they want to be an academic, but because they, uh, you know, want to do something else. 
uh, whereas maybe in other places uh, it's going to be a little bit different. So I think it's quite hard to make generalizations about this topic that's going to apply equally to all countries and all paths within those countries even. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I, yeah, I think it is important to think about the different cultures or contexts. Um, yeah, I mean, Germany has a you know, famously sort of hierarchical, I guess, uh, employment or career trajectory in academia. Or there's a you know there's a bottleneck at a certain point in time if you want to get a you know permanent professorship. Um, that can be quite difficult for people to pass through. Although I guess you you would know more about it than I would, considering that you you worked there. Um, but uh, more generally, I, I guess you mentioned the kind of different aptitudes or interests that people might have in an academic role. But as somebody who is interested in in research in particular, let's say, and, and teaching, do you think of yourself as having an important duty to fulfill administrative or managerial or your leadership roles within the university? Or is that something you think can be left to other people and there can be this specialization? Uh, well, I mean, if there are those who really want to take on those roles uh, and, you know, and there are others who don't, I think maybe then one can take that into account. On the other hand, I do think it's a good, it's a good idea to have some of these uh, leadership roles to, uh, go to different people. So, uh, I mean, a lot of American philosophy departments, for example, if I'm not mistaken, uh, would uh, have someone be the chair for, I think, maybe three or four years, and then that goes to someone else. Uh, same thing uh, where I worked in Germany for three years at the University of Cologne. That was also the, the practice there, that someone would be the chair of the whole department for a certain period of time, and then that would go to another person. That can, I think, also be a good thing, because then you might get different styles, and then you're not all the, you know, the powers in one set of hands and it's kind of, you know, it's, it goes to someone else for a while. And, uh, and, and so that, that, that can be, a, you know, benefits to that. Uh, I mean, um, I, I think, yeah, this, we, you wouldn't want it to only be people who are interested in this because they might then not be sensitive enough to the, peop, uh, to the needs and the interests of people who are interested in the other parts of academia uh, and, but on the other hand, if they like it and others prefer to you know, have them take it over, uh, that might be a reason to, to divide things up that way. I mean, I myself have had some leadership roles that I've enjoyed, maybe others that I've enjoyed less. But uh, for most of them, I think, you know, one's learned maybe something about how the university works as an organization. And also, you know, you get more insight into the, the job of those people who take those roles. And so you can become more sensitive to their needs and also how, you know, uh, I mean, I've been recently uh, the, uh, the director of an MA program at my university. And then, you know, I now have a lot of respect for the person who usually has this role and who was on a sabbatical now because I realized just how much work it is. And, you know, you're dealing with uh, prospective students, uh, current students, former students, you're dealing with the teachers and you know university admin people etc so uh you know you you get quite an interesting perspective on uh programs and how they're running and also the the uh, how much time it takes into you know it up for you and also you know how many different uh, things you have to do and so i think it's I, I think it's good that we 
if and to the extent that we circulate these roles among us, uh, you know, in, in academic departments, that everyone gets a sort of insight into some of the work that others are doing, because that can also make them more sensitive to how uh, they maybe have less time for certain things, and that uh, you know some things that maybe seem important to them, maybe to others who haven't yet been in that role, can seem less important, and why they care so much about this particular issue. Uh, well, because you know that for whatever planning and purposes, it's very important to fill certain functions. You know, who's going to supervise what MA student, or who's going to you know grade what uh, you know which students work, etc. That can be quite a lot of work, and so. It's good if people kind of work together and, and help each other out so that they can also uh, do other things and not have to, you know, take, you know, have, have these tasks be their the one and only things that they're kind of devoting their working days to. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a larger conversation to be had there as well, I guess, about the, you know, sometimes there's uh, allegations of injustice along kind of gender lines when it comes to the share of administrative burdens within academic departments and Often there's perceptions of injustice about how managerial or leadership positions are divvied up across departments or the fear that some people aren't doing their fair share and other people are doing more than their fair share. So as you say, I think like some some policies like cycling through and being open to exploring these other opportunities is good just to see the level of work that might be involved in different roles and appreciating the, the burdens attached to them. Otherwise, we I guess we are we can be quite insensitive and maybe a bit too individualistic and academia often breeds that kind of individualism about your own you know, research agenda and what you're doing and uh, a certain disconnect from the institutional context in which you work. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. I think, um, yeah, I think we'll probably just leave it there. That's uh, enough material, I think. Um, so thanks for uh, making the time for joining me for this conversation. Thanks a lot.